simple. It's to know Jesus and to make him known. And in my preaching, I like to bring this to the forefront of everything of, uh, to our minds because it drives every single thing that we do as a church. And as we come into the month of November, we're reminded that Christmas is literally just around the corner. And some of you don't want to think about that, and that's okay. But it's true. We have Operation Christmas Child, you have shopping lists, you have travel arrangements. It's going to be here before you know it. And I've wanted to fight against this Christmas push, but I'm just kind of go with, going to go with the flow because that's how everybody does these days. And before I introduce this series, I want to appoint you to one of my favorite passages of all time. Uh, Luke 24, verses 13 through 32. It's a bit longer, but, but the punch is always more meaningful when we read Scripture in context. And this takes place right after Jesus rose from the dead. It says this, Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. These are two disciples of Jesus's. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And they talked and discussed these things with each other. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. It's Jesus being silly. About Jesus of Nazareth, he replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish are you, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? A lot of times when we start the Christmas season, we're usually content to think about how there's no room at the end, at the end, about how baby Jesus is in his little manger, about how these three wise men came from foreign lands to see this newborn king. We often think about the star of Bethlehem as well. And this is all a beautiful scene. It's all a beautiful story. But we need to remember that this isn't the beginning of the story. 
What we see in the birth of Jesus is the culmination of close to 4,000 years of God working together events and situations so that in the perfect time, he could send a savior to redeem this broken world. What we also need to remember is that this was the plan that God had in eternity past. So in preparation for the Advent season and the Christmas season, we're going to be looking at how the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ from the very first chapters of Genesis to the very last chapters of Malachi. So before we get into this little manger that we like to talk about all the time, we're going to spend this time reflecting on how the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. Before I get any further, let me say this. This series is far from comprehensive. We only have a month to go through it. And if Jesus could go through the whole Old Testament with two disciples on the road to Emmaus in the course of an evening, what hope do I have of covering everything up here? So what I want to do this morning is give us a little bit of a rundown of the ways that Christ appears in the Old Testament And as we continue through the series, we're going to look at different aspects that we see this morning in depth. But before we do, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll just open our hearts and minds to the fact that you've been weaving together history so you could bring us your son, Jesus. I pray that you'll illuminate your word, make it so real to us. Help us to know you and love you more. Praise in Christ's name. Amen. So we need to start at the very, very beginning. But I don't mean Genesis, people. I mean John chapter 1, okay? And we really have to start here before we go through Scripture because John 1 holds the key to how we understand the first few chapters of the book of Genesis. John 1, 1 through 3 says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And that word here, the logos in the Greek, is Jesus. Now listen to what John is saying here. He's saying that Jesus is not only God, but he's also the primary agent through which everything came into existence. But he's also saying something very profound as well, that Jesus has existed forever. You would think that by the way we talk about Jesus at Christmas time, that he is the Son and the Father, and, he, and the Father brought the Son into existence 2,000 years ago. But that's simply not true. The Son has always been. Jesus has always existed with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit through eternity past. They are all still gods, God, but they are still different persons within the triunity of God. So as we turn to the Old Testament, we need to remember that Jesus Christ is present through each and every single event. And now we can turn back to Genesis. Okay? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So do you want to know where Jesus first shows up in the Old Testament? It's right here, John 1, uh, Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. Remember, Jesus has no beginning, he has no end, he's eternal, and he's the primary agent through which everything that was made was made. And you read through the Genesis narrative, and you begin to see that the Son was always there when the Father spoke into existence the trees, animals, the seas, and the skies. He was there through all of it. 
And you know how the story goes. God creates everything perfect and beautiful, including human beings who were the crown of his creation. And the humans, Adam and Eve, they rebel against God by eating from the only tree that God told them not to. And they would have been fine if they had listened to God, but instead they listened to the serpent that tempted them into disobeying the one command that God gave them. And after this, we have the fall of man. And Genesis three fourteen through 15, read this way. Uh, God's talking to the serpent who tempted Adam and Eve. He says, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And this piece right here about crushing the serpent's head is peculiar because it's a passage that you might miss if you don't read Genesis 1 through 3 very carefully. But what you have here is what theologians call the proto-evangelium. And that means the the pre-gospel, meaning that this is the gospel summed up thousands of years before anyone would ever mention the name of Jesus. But this is where the idea of a Savior first comes into play in the Old Testament. And like I said, you might miss this if you don't read it carefully enough. Now, what some non-Christian scholars will say is that this just refers to how snakes and human beings will never get along. Snakes are going to slide across the ground all shifty-like, and they're going to bite people's feet. But in the end, we're going to be able to stomp on their heads. So for some, this is just an argument from nature, okay? But I like to think that there's more going on in this passage. First, you know, God talks to the serpent in the plural. He says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. But then he gets to the particular. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, if God were just referring to the way that humans and snakes never get along with each other, then God would only speak in the plural. He would say something completely different. But he doesn't which leads us to think that there's something deeper and more significant going on here. Second, we don't have time to go through every single instance, but this imagery of trampling or crushing or breaking between seeds occurs occurs all throughout Scripture. For instance, as early as Genesis 21, when you see the conflict between Isaac and Ishmael, this wasn't just two brothers who couldn't get along. This was a conflict between faith in God and no faith in God. You see this in some of the prophets as well. The people of God will crush the heads of the people that oppose God, literally and figuratively. And listen to the way that Habakkuk addresses God. It says this in Habakkuk, You went out for the salvation of your people and for the salvation of your anointed, or the Messiah. You crushed the head from the house of the wicked, laying bare from tail to neck. All throughout the Old Testament, You see this imagery between the people of God and the enemies of God, and the people of God crushing the heads of the enemies of God. And it continues into the New Testament as well, okay? That's when you see John the Baptist calling the Pharisees a brood of vipers. And that's why Jesus gives his disciples authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy in Luke chapter 10. 
And that's why Paul tells the Romans in chapter 16 that God will soon crush Satan under their feet. And there are other instances as well throughout the New Testament where you see this imagery. So Genesis 3.15 isn't about how humans and snakes will never be able to coexist. This is about fundamentally how God will crush his enemies under his feet. And this finds no better example than when Jesus went to the cross, inaugurating a new kingdom of forgiveness and love, signaling to Satan that his plans will always be thwarted by God. But even from the very, so from, from the very beginning of Scripture, okay, you see a glimpse of Jesus even from the first chapters of Genesis, thousands of years before Jesus would walk this earth. And this only begins the Christocentricity of the Old Testament. And as I've said before, Christ saturates the Old Testament. He's everywhere. You can't get away from this idea that a Savior will come and save this world from its brokenness and from darkness. And there's three primary ways that Christ appears in the Old Testament, which is what I want to focus on a little bit this morning. There's theophanies, there's types, and there's prophecies. So first off, you have this thing called theophanies. Now, it sounds like a pretty big word, but all it means is an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. You've probably heard these referred to as Christophanies as well. They're the same thing. And as you read through the Old Testament, you're going to see this entity appear called the angel of the Lord. Throughout the Old Testament, you'll see an angel of the Lord. You'll see angels of the Lord. But you'll also see this thing appear called the angel of the Lord. And in Genesis 16, the angel of the Lord appears to a woman named Hagar, telling her that she will bear a son named Ishmael, who will be the enemy of basically everybody. And the angel appears again in Genesis chapter 1. And one of the more famous instances of this angel appearing to, the angel of the Lord appearing to a human, is in the case of Moses and in the burning bush. Exodus 3, chapter 3, verse 2 says this, And the angel of the Lord appearing to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and he behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Fast forward to Judges 2. Now the angel of the Lord said to the Israelites, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the, into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars." but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they will become thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you. And as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now just notice here that the angel of the Lord doesn't say, the Lord God says, or the Lord has sent me. Instead he says, I brought you from Egypt. The angel of the Lord is better and he's more authoritative than all the other angels you see throughout Scripture. In Judges 13, the angel appears to a woman and tells her that she will bear a son, and that son became Samson. And the angel appears several times in the book of Zechariah. Now you might be saying, well, Ben, that's probably just a special messenger of God, a little higher than the angels. Dude, you're reading, you're reading into this. You're crazy, man. But I like to think that I'm not that crazy. And here's why. As I mentioned before, the angel always speaks as if he's God himself. 
If he were a messenger, he would bring news on behalf of God, he ne- but he never does. It's always as God himself. Whenever he appears, people are afraid, and the Bible never says why. But I venture it's because when you see something that powerful and beautiful and holy, you're going to be afraid for your life. I mean, come on, if you saw an angel, you wouldn't rejoice. I think you'd be scared. But not only are these people afraid, they get down on their knees and begin worshiping the Lord. And you know what? The angel never tells them not to. And that's because I think this angel probably has divine qualities that no other angel has. If the angel wasn't God, he'd probably say, don't bow to me, bow to him. Now, some of you might think, well, Ben, you know, is that really Jesus? I mean, it could just be the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, angels, kind of the same thing, right? Well, you're wrong, because the Holy Spirit appears in the Old Testament as well. In Genesis 1, we read that the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters, And all throughout the Old Testament, you see the Holy Spirit being placed on various leaders and judges and prophets. Now, why would the Holy Spirit appear as both an angel and as himself? What's interesting is that whenever you see the angel of the Lord appear, it's always at a crucial moment in redemption history. The saga of Isaac and Ishmael the commissioning of Moses, the birth of pivotal leaders of God's people, and the judgment of Israel. Each of these appearances move God's story of redemption forward a little bit. If Jesus is the one to bring redemption, it makes sense that he would be the one to move the timeline of redemption along. Not only this, there's no such thing as the angel of the Lord in the New Testament. You have Gabriel, You have Michael in Revelation, but you don't have the angel of the Lord. Why is that? Because the angel of the Lord has been revealed to be the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So whenever you read through Scripture and you come across this angel of the Lord, know that you're coming across an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. So Jesus appears in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord, but he also appears as typologies in the Old Testament as well. Now, like a theophany, that's kind of a weird word right there. But all it really means is that there are certain figures in the Old Testament who are a foreshadowing of Christ or are analogous to Jesus Christ in some way. And a good example of this in our culture is when it comes to like celebrities or politicians. Um, Lenny Kravitz was supposed to be the next Jimi Hendrix. Debatable. Some would say that Barack Obama is the next JFK because of their similarities in career and political beliefs. You can debate that as well. Twelve Years a Slave is this generation's Schindler's List. And I saw a t-shirt the other day that said that kale is the new beef. (laughs) Some of you may like that, but I know many of you will not. And the list goes on and on. There are certain people and parts of our culture that hearken us back to different people from an age past. And it's the same way in Scripture. There are figures who foreshadow who Christ is and what Christ will do. Adam, the first man in Scripture, okay, who was a representative of humanity. Jesus is the Son of Man. It means the same exact thing. Abel, who was unjustly killed by his brother Cain, is shown to be a type of Christ in that he was the first one to suffer for righteousness' sake. Noah was a type of Christ in that he served as a sort of second Adam. 
Now, he wasn't the second man or even the last Adam, but he was a type of the one who was to come. And just as God had given Adam the mandates to be fruitful and multiply, so he gives Noah the same command. And Noah was the the one who saved creation from the wrath of God in the flood, just as Christ would do the same thing on a cosmic scale. Moses was the great lawgiver who gave the law of God to the children of Israel. Jesus is the one who explained the law and what it meant on Mount Sinai in Matthew chapter 5, verse, chapter 5 through 7. Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt. Jesus leads his people out of darkness and into light. David is clearly a type of Christ because he was a warrior. He was a king and a leader who was betrayed. And interestingly too, after both David and Jesus were both betrayed, they each crossed a river called the Brook Kidron. And the list goes on and on, people. Melchizedek was a king and priest whom the book of Hebrews names as a type of Christ. Samson is the mighty judge of Israel, just as Christ is. And Jonah was a type of Christ because he was stuck three days and three nights in the belly of a whale, just as Christ would spend three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. The more you dig into the Old Testament, the more you'll see that God was giving the people of Israel a taste of someone who was better than anything they'd ever seen before. In these these types of Christ, you see hope. And you see that God was going to improve on everything and everyone that the Jewish people had put their faith and hope in. So you see Christ in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord. And you see him foreshadowed in major figures throughout the Old Testament. And finally, you see Jesus prophesied about like a bajillion times. And this is probably one of the greatest testaments to God's plan of redemption. Simply the fact that he's peppered prophecies all throughout the Old Testament. Now, as far as the number of these prophecies goes, there's like a huge gap, okay? Some of the more critical Christian scholars, and I don't mean critical of Christianity, Christianity, just people who were attentive to, uh, to the context and who read things with a very careful eye. They'll say that there are about 85 prophecies of Christ in the Old Testament. But there are those Christians who have very active imaginations and who want to read Christ into every single nook and cranny of the Old Testament as well. And they'll say that there are over 600 prophecies about Jesus. Now, I haven't done all the research necessary to determine just how many prophecies there really are, and I don't intend to because that's going to take a lot of time. But the fact remains is that if there's only even 85 prophecies of Christ, which all came true, that's still pretty astounding, people. Nearly everything about the life of Christ is prophesied in the Old Testament. The virgin birth, various aspects of his ministry, the details of his betrayal and his death and his resurrection, his triumph over death, depth, death. If you do a personal study on this, I bet you're going to come to a greater appreciation of the Old Testament and how God pays attention even to the tiniest details of his plan. Now, when you put all these types and theophanies and prophecies together, you'll find the Old Testament is filled with hope. And promise. God always remains faithful to his promises, and it especially rings true in the Old Testament. Many of us don't really even care about the Old Testament because it seems so harsh and it seems so foreign to us. We like the New Testament because it's it's not as long, it's more accessible, and the hero Jesus comes in, he's front and center. But it's like skipping ahead to the last season of a TV show you really like. 
you don't get that foundation that the show builds. Or it's like only watching the Super Bowl, like I know a lot of you do. You don't see how your teams progress throughout the season. You don't get to struggle and agonize week after week after week with your team. And as a result, you don't get the payoff that happens when you finally see them succeed. And it's the same thing with the Old Testament. We fail to realize how much of a foundation the Old Testament has laid for us. It actively anticipates that at some point in history, the perfect point, God will send a Savior to rescue this world from darkness. Christmas came at the perfect time, which I'm sure we'll talk about in the weeks ahead. This is all that God has woven together. He's woven together the history, the the people, the stories of the Old Testament to make the birth of Christ happen. Think of how God moved salvation history along in the Old Testament. All the births, all the deaths, all the wars, all culminating in the incarnation of the Son of God. The biblical narrative really is the greatest story of all time. Glory is promised in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, glory will be revealed. When he was traveling on the road with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, Jesus showed them how the entire canon of the Old Testament testified to him. And their reaction wasn't, whoa, this dude was awesome. It wasn't, well, I loved how much he really opened my mind to different things. It was, did not our hearts burn within us? I was rereading some of uh, Bruce Edwards' works this past week. And I was captivated by a particular passage in uh, Not a Tame Lion, where Bruce talks about Paul's metaphor of seeing with the eyes of our heart, especially with regards to the nature of Jesus Christ. And here's what Bruce wrote. He says, this is one of Paul's most arresting metaphors. Clearly, the eyes of our heart must sometimes be further enlightened for us to understand what logic alone cannot reveal. We can be oblivious to things that God wishes us to know, but that we cannot comprehend only with our minds. We may read the New Testament and come to know Jesus intellectually as a man with a message. But if we learn to see with the heart, he becomes more than that. The Son of God is also a shepherd, the King of kings, the morning star, the way, the truth, and the life. He is a lamb, and most certainly a lion. These images are all true, and they are all captured first in the heart and then with the intellect. It's one thing to know all, has God, all God has done in the Old Testament with our minds. But God's trying to get to our hearts. We all love a great story. And this is the greatest story of all time. A story that culminates in us knowing and understanding and believing with all of our hearts the one who was and is and is to come, Jesus Christ. Glory is promised, and glory will be revealed. And when we celebrate communion, 
we celebrate the bruising of our Savior's heel. We celebrate that 2,000 years ago, the Son of God came and died to set us free from sin. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up here. And if you're here, and if you know Jesus, you're welcome to come up here during the worship time and take a piece of bread, dip it into the juice. Remember all that Jesus Christ has done for you. And if you're not a believer, I'd ask that you refrain and just sit back for a little bit. Remember that glory had been promised for thousands of years. And in Jesus Christ, in the New Testament, with the gospel, glory has been revealed. Will you stand with me as we pray?